my name is Matt. I'm one of the leaders here. Great to see you all this morning on this snowy Sunday. You guys were the ones who wanted to brave the roads. I'm very impressed. Um, we are continuing in our series on the book of Matthew this morning. So if you have a Bible or a Bible app, go ahead and open it up or a turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew 12, verse 22, and we'll get started. We have a complicated text this morning. So if you're uh, new to River's Edge or um, maybe not yet a follower of Jesus, wow, um, you picked an interesting day to come to church. Anyhow, as you're turning to the book of Matthew, uh, we'll be talking about spiritual warfare this morning, so I'm just going to pray for us uh, before we read the passage. Uh, Jesus, we uh, start by coming to you, recognizing that as we sang this morning, that you are king, that you have conquered sin and death, and that you invite us um, into your presence, more than that, into your family, uh, to be renewed and restored into a new humanity that actually looks totally different than the one that is shaped by the world. And so as we live in a world full of tension and full of voices, we pray that as we come into this, pre- into this place, and you would silence the voices that aren't yours, uh, the voices that we so commonly listen to, the voices that we allow to shape our lives, uh, would they be silenced in this place so that we might hear you more clearly? In Jesus' name, amen. All right, Matthew 12, verse 22 says this. It says, Then they brought him, or Jesus, a demon-possessed man, who was blind and mute, and Jesus healed him, so that he could both talk and see. All the people were astonished and said, Could this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard this, they said, It is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this fellow drives out demons. Jesus knew their thoughts and said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself will be ruined, and every city or household divided against itself will not stand. If Satan drives out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then can his kingdom stand? If I drive out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your people drive them out? So then, they will be your judges. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I drive out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or again, how can anyone enter a strong man's house and carry off his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man? Then he can plunder his house. As we enter chapter 12, we see for the first time in the book of Matthew that the religious establishment has made its crucial decision to reject Jesus in defense of their own power and privilege. And therefore, uh, they will increasingly accuse and attempt to trap Jesus. And eventually, for those of you who know the story, they will have him executed. But in today's passage, we get a new and interesting accusation. Jesus regularly makes a habit of uh, not just talking about the kingdom of God, as powerful as that is, but also in demonstrating and advancing the kingdom of God by healing the sick, raising the dead, and casting out demons. In this specific episode, we're told they brought him a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute, and Jesus healed him so that he could both talk and see. So clearly, uh, there are a lot of sick and hurting people that are being brought to Jesus and are being healed. And in some of those cases, 
Jesus discerns that, that the root cause of the affliction is not just the fact that we live in a broken world, but, but there are times when he discerns that there's something acutely demonic behind it. And so it was not uncommon for Jesus to rebuke demons in the power of God to cast them out and then to see physical healing as a direct result. And so this person in particular is released from the demonic and spiritually, I'm sorry, physically healed in the process. And it says that all the people were astonished and said, could this be the son of David? Or the victorious king that God promised us long ago? Uh, The descendant of David who would come to rule over the world. The crowds who are watching this day in and day out, they are thrilled. But the religious establishment, again in defense of their power and privilege, realize that they are at odds with uh, the person and teachings of Jesus. So if he is king, then, then their entire establishment is potentially rendered obsolete. Their power and privilege would be taken from them. And so they level an interesting accusation. They say it is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this fellow drives out demons. And at this point, we have to admit that things are getting a little weird. Because Beelzebul, by most accounts, is another name for Satan. And and so essentially they're saying, hey, you're not actually on God's side. You're not doing all of this stuff by God's power. You're actually harnessing a dark power and you're in league with demons and that's why you have authority to cast out the demon that was afflicting this man. And for most of us, in the modern West, in the midst of a culture of materialism and naturalism, are a bit lost at this point. In fact, for some of you, this will be the most difficult teaching that you will ever hear me teach. Because real, dark spiritual powers are not something that we want to think about or talk about, inside or outside of the church. And and there are so many layers of of cultural skepticism and, and baggage surrounding this issue that it would be overwhelming to even begin to unpack all of it this morning. Instead, what I'll ask you to do this morning is to suspend your skepticism for a few minutes, to to set it aside and perhaps even question where that skepticism comes from. And and then consider for, for just a few minutes what the scriptures have to say on this topic. Because what's unfolding here it isn't just a weird little superstitious footnote in the life and ministry of Jesus. Uh, What's unfolding here is something that I think is actually central to the life and ministry of Jesus. I believe this episode helps clarify why it is that Jesus came in the first place. And and if that sounds new or foreign to you, I hope it'll make more sense in just a few minutes. But I want to take a second to to begin to recapture or uncover what the scriptures have to say about this topic 
from cover to cover. First, in the opening lines of Scripture, at the very beginning of your Bibles, Genesis chapters 1 and 2, we get this powerful glimpse into the creative activity of the Creator God, who is sovereign over everything, who's all-powerful, but He creates creatures, human and angelic, who have free will. And with it, they have the ability to partner with him in what he's up to in the world or to reject him and stand in opposition to him. This, this choice is an incredible power which, which we have on loan from God himself and a power which he was pleased to give us. Without free will, without this choice between good and evil, between God and idolatry, between light and darkness, well then our presence in the light doesn't actually mean that much. Our our love of God actually becomes hollowed out. In fact, it can't be love at all. Love is only possible with choice. Choice is key. In a common theological narrative, that seems plausible, um, but perhaps not explicit in the scriptures, is that one of the most powerful created angelic beings abused his free will, rebelled against God, and now leads many others to do the same. The exact origins are up for debate, but what becomes clear is that by the time we get to Genesis chapter 3, There is a serpent there. We don't know how the serpent got there. Uh, We don't know the full nature uh, of the rebellion or how long the battle is raged. Uh, We don't get the full picture. But what we do know is that the serpent is Satan. And that he has come to pull people away from trusting relationship with God. Which seems to be what he does best. So he derails Adam and Eve and gets them to to worship themselves in a sense, to, to take everything up into their own hands and to reject God in the process, to, to distrust him, to rebel. And, and as they listen to the serpent and disobey God, there's a sense in which they abdicate their authority and almost hand it over to the serpent. And from that moment forward, from Genesis 3 forward, it becomes abundantly clear that something is terribly wrong in creation. Now, because I'm speaking in one of the most materialistic and skeptical cultures in human history, I think it's worth pausing for a moment to point out that essentially every human being and every human culture has arrived at this conclusion in one form or another. Something is deeply wrong in creation. And a shocking number of of human cultures throughout history have also arrived at the conclusion 
that the tension and corruption that we see present in the created order it is a result of a spiritual battle that is raging behind the scenes. And that human beings are caught in the middle. And, and you can study just about any culture, in any time, in any place throughout human history, and nearly every single one of them has arrived at that conclusion. That some sort of spiritual battle is raging, and, and that creation and humanity are caught in the tension. Now, in the modern materialistic West, and in atheist and uh, communist regimes, the, these new kind of emerging schools of thought would categorically deny the spiritual warfare aspect of what I'm talking about. But they will heartily join in the conclusion that something is terribly wrong with humanity. An hour of the nightly news is evidence of that. This week's school shootings are evidence of that. Our lives are, are the testimony to that simple and foundational truth. And so each camp or culture proposes its own solution to the perceived problem. For some, that's, that's socialism and, and working out sort of an economic equality. Others see the solution lying in social engineering. Others want to do it through the legal system and, and the threat of punishment or prison. Others uh, want to solve the problem through a violent revolution of the oppressed classes or, or through social engineering. Many other camps, especially in our modern age, look to education or the economy or the environment or even atheism in an attempt to find a solution. And, and, and they say, hey, if we were all educated, if every human being was educated enough, then the problem would go away. If we were all to drop religion, then the tension that we sense within humanity would go away. Hey, if each of us had enough money and enough opportunity to, to prosper, then human evil will disappear. But sadly, each and every one of those things has proven completely and totally ineffective at eradicating human evil. You can take people out of destitution and you can give them a new home and, and a better job. You can educate entire communities to new levels that they had never achieved before. You can take an entire nation and attempt to make it atheist. Or you can regulate its economy until you're blue in the face. And in every single case, there is gross and unspeakable evil that persists. Atheists and communist regimes have been some of the harshest and most brutal in human history. And the studies show that if you take people and, and place them in nice houses, it doesn't make them nice people. And if you look at the leadership of ISIS, you'll find that many of them, perhaps most, 
are highly educated and wealthy individuals. It seems that in the modern age, we are constantly grasping for the wrong solutions. But it is worth pointing out that everyone seems to agree that there is a problem. That evil exists, that something is off, that human beings are susceptible to it. The various cultures of the ancient Near East, they knew this well. And they believed, as the majority of human cultures have throughout history, that it could be attributed largely to a greater battle raging between real spiritual beings in the heavenly realms. And it was in the midst of all of these cultures that the Bible was written. And the interesting thing uh, that's, that's shocking to me The massive difference between the Bible and all of the cultures that surrounded the first biblical community is that the Bible affirmed with crystal clarity that there was one creator God and that he was sovereign and all-powerful over creation. And, And that though there were some who were in rebellion against him, including the serpent in the garden, He was still all-powerful, and he could not possibly be threatened or overcome by his enemies. The world is not yin and yang. It's not two equal and opposite forces. The ultimate fate of the universe is not unknown. And so the first 75% of your Bible, which we call the Old Testament or, or the Hebrew Scriptures, acknowledges the war, but it is unique from all other cultures surrounding it in that it spends most of its time establishing God's glory and his power and his supremacy over the other rebellious elemental spiritual forces at work in the world. The lack of constant warfare rhetoric was in some sense the Bible's way of highlighting the supremacy of the creator God. God is king over creation, the Old Testament tells us. He's king over the hostile and raging waters that in the Jewish mind represented chaos and darkness. He's king over Baal, king over Molech, king over the prince of Persia, king over Beelzebul, king over Satan, all of the ways that evil is portrayed in the Old Testament. But we still get the firm and consistent conviction all the way throughout the Old Testament, that something has gone askew in creation. That that something profoundly sinister is undermining the goodness of God's world and now perpetually threatens it. Not all is well in creation. But while this uh, tension and warfare largely rage behind the scenes, in the Old Testament, and sort of God's supremacy and even the struggle of God's people are highlighted as we move into the New Testament and Jesus shows up on the scene. The spiritual battle itself moves out of the shadows and onto center stage. If tangible evil had derailed the world of the Old Testament and threatened to devour it, 
then by the time we reach the New Testament, it is clear in the minds of the Jewish people that evil had swallowed the world completely. And, and that the world was now in need, not of God's protection to keep evil at bay, but of God's deliverance from the evil that had swallowed it completely. Greg Boyd, in his book, God at War, says it this way. He says, These Jews, writing out of their own intense experience of evil, came to the remarkable conclusion that in a significant sense, the battle between Yahweh, or the Creator God, and opposing spiritual forces for the world had been, at least temporarily, lost by Yahweh. They were certain that Yahweh would ultimately, and soon, reclaim his cosmos, vanquish his foes, and reinstate himself on his rightful throne. But in the present age, their conviction was that Satan had stolen the world. In fact, Satan had assumed such control over creation that by the time you get to the New Testament, it references him as the God of this age and the ruler of this world. And it's into this tension that Jesus is born. That God stepped into creation and became human. And I hope at this point we have a growing sense of just what it is that he came to do. There's a very real sense in which Jesus came to reverse what had happened in the garden. To reorder what became disordered so long ago. God came to liberate his creation from the grip of evil, sin, and death, and to redeem it or reconcile it back to himself, to release it from slavery and take back for himself all that the enemy had taken from him. He came to take back what is rightfully his. Mostly, every single human being and every square inch of the created universe. He came to plunder the enemy's house. And so all of Jesus' life and teachings and ministry and his sacrificial death on the cross and his resurrection again from the dead all fit squarely and centrally into this mission. In fact, I think the only way to create a unified uh, vision and a comprehensive understanding of all that Jesus did and said is to interpret all of them collectively as acts of war. What do calming a chaotic storm, the raging and hostile waters, and feeding 5,000 people, and raising someone from the dead, and healing someone from leprosy, and casting out a demon, and teaching people the truth about who God is. What do all of those things have in common? They're all acts of war against the God of this age. They are all reclaiming for God what is God's and denying Satan of his illegitimate victory that started in the garden. And all of these acts point forward to 
a future kingdom in which that victory will come in full. I spent years of my Christian life, been following Jesus for 10 years. I spent most of that time reading through the Gospels, assuming that most of what I was reading were, were like magic tricks that Jesus used to prove his divinity. Honestly, how do we know Jesus was God? Well, he did this and he did this and this random thing over here. But the more I learn about the kingdom of God and the more I understand about the dominion of darkness, the more I question that assumption. I, I think there is way more significance here than I had assumed. In fact, if you've been with us for the last year or so since we planted the church, you know that we've talked a lot about the inbreaking kingdom of God, which Jesus came to initiate. And so we talk often within the church about advancing the kingdom of God uh, or seeing the kingdom advanced on earth. Uh, we're fairly comfortable, even in the modern West, talking about the kingdom of God advancing. What we are far less comfortable talking about is what it's advancing into. We don't really want to talk about that. Because the kingdom of God, as it advances on earth, and it is advancing every single day, it's not advancing into a vacuum. It, it's not simply claiming vacant ground. It, it, it's not like staking a flag on the moon or some empty planet. You're not, you're not planting seeds in a plowed and open field. It is advancing into a very real and established dominion of darkness as an act of war. And Jesus said that the global community of his faithful followers would storm the gates of hell. The light is going to advance powerfully and forcefully into the darkness, and the darkness will not overcome it. And that's exactly what is happening in and through Jesus and his earthly ministry. And the crowds see it, and, and they're amazed. And the Pharisees and the religious elite are flustered. They, they don't have that power over darkness. They can't offer that freedom. And so they make the accusation. Well, you only have that power because you're in league with Satan. And Jesus' answer to their accusation both tells us something about the nature of the dominion of darkness and exposes their accusation as being a bit silly. He says this. He says, Every kingdom divided against itself will be ruined, and every city or household divided against itself will not stand. If Satan drives out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then can his kingdom stand? If I drive out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your people drive them out? Okay, so if they're all united and not fighting each other, then what you're accusing me of doesn't really make sense. I use darkness to drive out darkness. Sorry, guys. I, I think you need to check your logic on that one. 
The dark powers seek to divide people from God and to pit people against one another, but they themselves are united under one leader. Take a step back and look at the big picture. If you think darkness is driving out darkness, you need to think deeply about the implications. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I drive out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. And as the kingdom of God advances, the united dominion of darkness falls and shatters. The gospel is not a fluffy message about kindness being preached into a bored and neutral world that's just a little too grumpy. Guys, can't we all just get along? Can't we all just be a little more friendly and a little less grumpy? Can't we all just pay our taxes and and practice random acts of kindness? As if Jesus died so that we'd give a good tip at Red Robin. That's not the gospel. The gospel is so much bigger than that. The gospel is about the kingdom of God advancing and overtaking real and tangible evil, both grotesque and mundane, both violent and apathetic. From the Nazi prison camps to to the teenage video game addiction and good old-fashioned laziness in, in which we attempt to withdraw from everything and stay neutral and distracted and self-centered. The problem is, there's no such thing as neutral in this battle. You're either with God or you're against Him. You're either advancing the kingdom or you're standing in the way. You're either with Jesus or you reject Him in favor of Satan and self. This is war. And for better or for worse, there is no middle ground. Which is why Jesus says, in the very next verse after the passage that we read today, He says this, He says, whoever is not with me is against me. And whoever does not gather with me scatters. What's he saying? He's saying, this is war. I'm here to retake the earth. And you're either with me or you're against me. You're either partnering with me to advance the kingdom of God and bringing truth and grace and reconciliation and beauty and healing to creation and humanity, or you stand in opposition to it. And it might be a polite, reserved, apathetic, and composed opposition. Or it might be violent and ugly and grotesque, but it's opposition all the same. And as war unfolds on a cosmic scale, There aren't any grandstands. There there isn't any place for spectators. 
There's no such thing as a mutual bystander. Whoever is not with me, Jesus says, is against me. Whoever is not freed by the cross and living for the kingdom is held captive by the enemy. The whole earth was swallowed up by the enemy and it was bound by the enemy. And and this has given the great multitude of demonic forces underneath him free reign on the earth to control and harass humanity. And Jesus says, I'm here to take it all back. Are you with me? This conversation that Jesus is having with the Pharisees is not a weird, superstitious little footnote that we can simply toss out in our modern skepticism. It is the very reason He came. It sums up all of His activity from start to finish. It's not that Jesus came as a really nice guy, just kind of trotting around on on neutral grounds, encouraging people to do nice things. Don't forget to tip. No! Jesus came as God incarnate, as a conquering revolutionary, to take back for God what is God's and to destroy the kingdom of darkness along the way. End of story. The enemy comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. I have come, Jesus says, that they might have life and have it to the full. The enemy sits in absurd and pretentious authority over God's good world, and I came to bind him and plunder his house. In fact, all of Jesus' acts appear incohesive and unrelated until we interpret them collectively as acts of war. Have you ever wondered why spiritual warfare takes center stage right after Jesus is born? Like you're reading through the Bible and you reach the New Testament and all of a sudden there's demons everywhere. Like, what? Why? Because the incarnation itself is an act of war. It is a declaration of war against the dominion of darkness and it expresses God's unwavering intent to reclaim the world for himself. And and the next thing you read after the incarnation and, and Jesus' birth is Jesus as a grown man facing the temptation of Satan in the desert, just like Adam and Eve did in the garden. And Satan comes to him and he says, hey, if you worship me, I'll give you all the kingdoms of the earth and all of their splendor. And you know what struck me as I was studying this week? Jesus doesn't object to Satan's ability to do that. Perhaps all the kingdoms of the earth really are under his control. Perhaps he really can offer that to to Jesus. But by becoming the first human being to fully reject Satan's authority, not falling to temptation, but instead 
following and trusting God in perfect faithfulness, he reclaims what was lost in the garden. And he begins the process of conquering and disarming our enemy. And from those temptations forward, as you read through the Gospels, he is just plundering the enemy's house. And and people are shocked that he has such authority and, and that he has such power. How? Because he's, he's taken away Satan's power. He, he's bound him up. And, and now the kingdom will move forward. The kingdom of darkness is left scattered and stunned. It, it's limping around on the run in the face of the advancing kingdom of God while mounting a, a malicious and desperate resistance as it retreats. And, and if this is true, if you haven't tuned me out completely in the last 20 minutes, and, and this stuff that I'm speaking about is true, then pretending that evil doesn't exist, or that demons don't exist, or that Satan doesn't exist, isn't going to get us anywhere. In fact, it's going to leave you more confused about Jesus and more confused about the nature of our reality, not less. Jesus comes as a conquering king, advancing his kingdom as an act of war, and he brings victory and healing and radical love and grace and freedom to a world that is lost and trembling in the dark. Sitting bound under the enemy. Left victim to condemnation and to sin and to death. He came to conquer the united kingdom of darkness and to plunder the enemy's house. And he invites you Join him. And I know that was a lot to to unpack theologically. But because I want to end on a practical note, here are three quick thoughts on how we partner with Jesus in robbing the enemy's house, so to speak, in reclaiming the world for God. First, if you're taking notes, we share the gospel. The gospel, we're told, has the power to open their eyes and turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God so they might receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith. This is the principal means by which the enemy's work is destroyed. Satan can work years to build up calluses on someone's heart, to create disbelief in someone's heart, to twist them and to blind them to who God is, to pull them away from God and trusting relationship with him. And with a simple receiving of the gospel, decades of the enemy's work comes crashing down. It is the receiving of the message of God's love of Jesus' radical and sacrificial death in our our place for our sins 
and his resurrection from the dead that, that actually brings us to life again and sets us free. It makes us new creations who are alive again to God. Two of the principal weapons that the enemy uses against humanity are condemnation and death. You will hear the accusing voice of the enemy, either in a place of victory or defeat, and you will die. Those are his two greatest weapons. But notice that what Jesus did on the cross disarms both of them. Conquers our condemnation. You are forgiven. You're cleansed. You're made new. You never have to listen to that condemning voice again. And for followers of Jesus, they pass right through death. And what's waiting on the other side is better than what's here. He conquers them both and he leaves the enemy disarmed in our presence. If you want to see someone set free, Share the truth about who Jesus is and what he's done. First, we share the gospel. Second, we work to resist and overcome evil in all forms and places. The evil that we see and sense in the world that you've seen on the news this week. And even the evil that we see and sense within ourselves. And when we encounter evil anywhere, we don't dance around it and we don't justify it and we don't close our eyes to it and, and we don't shrug our shoulders and say, huh, must be God's will. Why do we say that? Jesus never said that. The, the disciples don't, don't go around saying that. They say, wake up. This is war. And Satan has a will. And God has a will. And they couldn't be more opposed. And you're sitting right in the center. Be alert, they say. Be sober-minded. Your enemy roams around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. And if you resist him, he will flee from you. And so we resist and even overcome evil with patience, with prayer, with, with foot washing, with faith, with acts of justice, small and large, with acts of service, both great and inconspicuous. We say, God, your kingdom come and your will be done in this place as it is in heaven. Is there gossiping in the kingdom? No. Is there pride in the kingdom? No. Is there racism in the kingdom? Not a chance. Do greed and stinginess guide businesses in the kingdom? Are there sweatshops in the kingdom? Do people starve to death in the kingdom? Are children sold as slaves in the kingdom? No, they are not. Jesus, your kingdom come in this place as it is in heaven. And as it does, may the darkness 
flee and tremble in your presence. Wait a second, Matt, are you talking about like trying to earn your own righteousness before God? No! I'm talking about the kingdom. And wherever evil is resisted and overcome, then the kingdom of God has come upon that place. So first, we share the gospel. Second, we resist and fight evil in all shapes and sizes. And finally, in our resistance of evil, in our advancing of the kingdom, we recognize that the most powerful weapon we have is prayer. And so as we go about the business of following Jesus and seeing God's kingdom come, in our classrooms, in our workplaces, in our neighborhoods, in our nations. Remember that it's not advancing into empty space and that prayer is the means by which we clear the ground, so to speak, and make room for the kingdom. And so as you encounter evil in various forms, whether it's prison camps in North Korea or corruption in in the local workplace, or gossip at the middle school lunch table, may you start and end with prayer. As you encounter recurring sin in the life of the disciple, as you encounter things that are overtly demonic, may you start and end with prayer. We pray for the kingdom and we pray against the dominion of darkness. The gospel is not advancing into a vacuum. And the frequency and and the passion and the content of our prayers should be reflective of that reality. There is real and tangible evil in the world, and the kingdom of God and the king who sits enthroned there is sufficient to overcome it. That's what we celebrate every time we gather. We're not just singing empty words when we worship Him. He is sufficient to overcome it. And if you belong to Him, then His authority over darkness has been given to you. The simple call of our community is to live in that awareness, and to walk in that authority. Let's pray. Jesus, we we love you. And we love you, God, because you first loved us. Because you came into a world that was shaking and trembling in the dark. Where everyone was left worshiping themselves or worse. And it's into that world that you've come to rescue us. That you've come to redeem us. 
And that as you do, Jesus, we recognize that darkness no longer has authority over us. That the demonic no longer has authority over us. That, that condemnation no longer has a place. We are now new creations that are even just beginning to wake up to the fullness of what that means, to the freedom that we have in you. Jesus, wake us up to the freedom that we have in you. And as we awaken to that freedom, Jesus, as we continually grow in walking in that freedom over darkness, would you wake us up to your kingdom? Because as we look within ourselves, as we look out to our schools that are hurting and in fear this week, as we look out to our businesses, to our workplaces, to our families, Jesus, we see and sense evil. We, we, we stand united with every single human being who has ever lived and saying something is off here. Something is wrong. And yet, Jesus, you wake us up to the true nature of the problem and you yourself supply the solution. Would you help us to understand? Would you help us to walk in that? And would this be a community that understands what it looks like for the kingdom of God to come, for your will to be done, for your kingdom to come in our lives and our spheres of influence and our nations as it is in heaven. In Jesus' name, amen.